0: The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us do tonight what is probably our last meeting concerning the Tibetan teachings from the yoga of the disciple. I hope that uh, I will finish this 25th paragraph. The Yoga of the Disciple continues with 28 paragraphs, but I'm not commenting every single paragraph in this text, those which I found very powerful and significant. And while the paragraph (coughs) number 24 was called... The ten more important things, like this thing is more important than that. One life spent in search of the truth is more important than a million lives spent doing nothing. The chapter number 25 is called the ten equal things. It's basically referring to the same great subject, but now it looks from a totally opposed angle, like things which are... Equal, and you will see how brilliant that is put. And the first of them runs as follows. For him who is sincerely devoted to the spiritual life, it is the same whether he refrains from worldly activities or not. This is as clear as it can be. For he or she who is, as says the text here, sincerely devoted to the spiritual life. It is the same whether he refrains from worldly activities or not. This means some spiritual practitioners were enjoined, were advised, do not involve yourself into worldly activities. Like you can live in a monastery, you can live in a hermitage, there you do the minimum necessary for the survival of the body, for the minimal necessities, and do not get involved in the things of the world. Even the Christian mystics had a similar echo when they recommended serious spiritual practitioners to live In communities of three or four people. This was the ideal hermetic community for the fathers of the desert. Because if you are alone, you can uh, go crazy. If you are two, you can start having anal sex with each other. If you are three, there is a sort of control of the group. Two can support the third one four is okay five becomes a community and you have to vote on decisions and organize who does this who does that and then you you start spending your time on administration instead of spending your time on spiritual practice and that's why uh, even the christian mystics resonate with this because they advise a lifestyle in which there should be not even administration chores of any kind. There should be just spiritual practice. Here, the Tibetans say, for him who is sincerely devoted to the spiritual life, which means who consecrates constantly, who has a powerful spiritual aspiration, for such a person who indeed obtains results, sublimes everything towards consecrates everything to the divine it is the same whether he refrains from worldly activities or not you are going to find ascetics who say you one should refrain from worldly activities because yeah you can say that it's some sort of karma yoga but actually it's much better if you spend two hours in prayer or meditation or some rather than spending two hours in administrative chores and other people would say no the renunciation of the world is not recommended one cannot truly refrain from action and therefore one is recommended As as the Bhagavad Gita puts it, one is advised to involve oneself in action, like Krishna says, look, O Arjuna, I have nothing to accomplish anymore in the three worlds, and yet I'm here involved in action with you. And the idea is that some people would say spiritual life is not possible without some karma yoga, Involve yourself into action because it's unrealistic to say I'm going to live a spiritual life where I will have nothing to do with actions. But on the other hand, other people say no, that still may be inferior in a certain way and you are going to stay away from all administrative chores of any kind. Tibetan yoga transcends this conflict. By simply saying, if the person is indeed committed to spiritual life, it's equal. Either you do spiritual action, either you do worldly activities or not, it won't make any difference because it's the spirit which makes the difference. Either you involve yourself in activities or not. A truly spiritual person who goes involved, implied... ...geared into worldly activities, such a person knows that they are going into worldly activities... ...and therefore such a person acts accordingly and therefore they compensate for it automatically. And therefore it is equal. This is one of the equal things. For a truly spiritual person, either doing worldly activities... Like you have to cook the food. Either you do some worldly activities or not. It is completely irrelevant. It is not any point of disagreement. It is the same. Second of the ten equal things. For him who has realized the transcendental nature of mind... It is the same whether he meditates or not. Because meditation in its primary levels is always about the mind. And some people get stuck in the mind and get stuck into the meditation. And they never leave the labyrinth of the mind. There exists a statement in spirituality which says that above the mind... We have the Supreme Self. It is the Self that rules over the mind. It is the consciousness which is the true master of the mind. But many people never reach to that consciousness. They have the mind. The mind is more or less clear, more or less deep, more or less insightful, more or less discriminative. And yet the person will not move beyond the mind because the true purpose of meditation is to go through the mind but the mind is not the target the mind is not the goal of the process and that's why here tibetan yoga is wonderful it says for him who has realized the transcendental nature of the mind like the mind is not an isolated force the mind is not just ajna chakra the mind is not prakriti The mind has a transcendental nature, which means when you go deep, 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 deep in the mind, you discover that the mind is the spirit, that the mind is Atman, that the mind is the Buddha nature, that the true nature of the mind is the void, is the Purusha, which is beyond the mind. So once a person has managed to do this leap and to manage to see the mind from above the mind... To manage to witness the mind in that moment, either one meditates or not, it is not important anymore. It is not important anymore because the purpose of meditation is either to give you some siddhis by staying in the mind, you do samyama and you get some siddhis some paranormal abilities by deepening the mind to levels where normal mortals don't go. And then what you can do with the mind is pretty much incomprehensible or miraculous, exceptional for them. Or the true purpose of the meditation is not to stop at the the siddhis, at paranormal accomplishments... But to use the mind as a springboard, as a trampoline for putting you into the beyond the mind, putting you into the spirit, into the Buddha nature, into the Atman, which is beyond the mind. And once this has been realized, who needs meditation? Because meditation, unless you want to obtain paranormal powers, if such a person once to obtain paranormal powers, then such a person has to get back to meditation. Meditation is still necessary because those paranormal powers are in Prakriti. They are on the levels one, two, three, four, five, six of the universe. But the spirit is on level seven. It's related to the crown of the universe. And once that has been accomplished, it is the same. The, the statement says, for him who has realized the transcendental nature of the mind, like what is the mind actually made of? Because in the first statement, we don't go that far. We say the whole universe is made of mind. The whole manifestation is mental. Yes, that's true. But there is a, a there is a corollary. There is a continuation to this statement. The whole universe is nothing but mind, the Shambhavi mudra of Shiva. And beyond that mind is the spirit of Shiva. It is the Paramatman, the Supreme Self, which actually controls this ocean of mind. The macrocosmic mind is not the last level. The macrocosmic mind is the last but one level because the ultimate level is the consciousness, the universal consciousness, which is something else. Therefore, the statement is very clear. For him who has realized the transcendental nature of the mind, that goal is attained, so it is the same whether he meditates or not. Again, not if we wish to achieve some things in Prakriti. If you want to have some, let's call them material accomplishments, although it's not strictly material, but material in the meaning of any of the six first planes of the universe, which means pretty much everything which exists around, then some meditation can be necessary as a means of obtaining those. But otherwise... Meditation has become unnecessary when the transcendental nature of the mind is truly realized. This is not an intellectual understanding. This is something which has to be experienced. That is why Arjuna, when talking to Krishna about this subject, he is in agony because he says, how can you actually control the mind? And Krishna says, only From the Supreme Self can you control the mind. The mind is not the master of the universe. The mind has a master. And that master is the self. The higher consciousness. Three. For him who is freed from attachment to worldly luxuries, it is the same whether he practices asceticism or not. In many, many orientations and lineages there exists this paranoia that you have to practice asceticism constantly or else the devil is going to take you. The devil is going to trick you even in the last moment. However, this injunction does not apply to he or she Who is freed from attachment to worldly luxuries. Like Krishna is not subjectable to this law. That Krishna has to practice some asceticism. To keep up. To keep the flame up. It's completely unnecessary for Krishna. It is completely unnecessary for Abhinavagupta. It is completely unnecessary for Buddha. But you are going to say, but Buddha did. He was the head of a monastic system. So he did practice asceticism. He was not a glutton while all the monks were practicing their austerities. Because they would have thrown rotten eggs at him if he would have been fake. If he would have been phony like this. So he was, yes, but not because he needed to. It is completely the same whether he practices or not. Buddha chose to practice his asceticism because he had decided to create a new dharma. He decided to create a new religion. And he worked from the age of 30-something when he got enlightened until the age of 80 or so when he passed away. Therefore, Buddha stayed in his physical body as an enlightened being for almost 50 years. And for those 50 years, He constantly hammered the four noble truths and the path into the minds of the disciples. And, of course, this involved the self-accepted sacrifice that he had to practice himself for them, in front of them. And thus, Buddha, he didn't need asceticism anymore. But if he wouldn't have done it, then Buddhism wouldn't have taken birth. And therefore, it was like a yoke, like a self-imposed yoke that Buddha had to take. If you really, Buddha, have so much uh, guts that you want to demonstrate to Shambhala that now you are the creator of a new religious line on the face of this earth, go ahead. But you have to pay the price for it. You have to, it's a matter of image. Your disciples will not be able to see if you Because Buddha could have become the drunken master, like in some Taoist martial arts, you know. He could have played the drunken master. But then Buddhism would not have existed. Buddhism existed because Buddha, although he didn't need it, he practiced redundant asceticism, redundant for him, but not for the world. He practiced pro forma asceticism for another 50 years, without actually needing it because he had reached nirvana already and yet he practiced what he practiced and he gave the canon the buddhist canon which he himself obeyed to the letter observed to the letter because he had he had the feeling that that was his dharma to create in the world a new spiritual path there is a price for that not many people have done that you see many people today who are founding sects and cults and religions and so on and they tumble off their pedestals one after another one after another they are exposed as being unworthy ridiculous people because not everybody can keep the bar up even when some people are presumed to have reached a level of enlightenment. We don't need to argue how much enlightenment they have reached. But controversial people like George Ivanovich Gurdjieff or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, Osho Rajneesh, they reached or they didn't reach, it doesn't matter. But fact is that they were controversial. Yes, they were very controversial. And for some people they were divine. And for some people they were total crooks and fakes. Therefore, you cannot you know when the Rajneshi people moved to Oregon in the states, they registered themselves like a new religion because of the tolerant u s a laws about religious freedoms you know and they they created a religion call a religion called Raajnnesheism, the religion of Rajneesh, Rajnesheism you know, but eventually osho was not gautama buddha right, and therefore. Rajnishaism is more of a joke than a religion, because precisely of that. So remember, people who reach a certain spiritual level, they may choose to practice asceticism or not, or 30% yes, or 70% yes, or whatever, whatever they feel that it serves their purpose, and whatever their purpose Is And it is not easy because in the moment when you are burning with aspiration and you want to save your soul, you are motivated. There are people in this room who now at this present time, they do every day serious spiritual practice. Why? Because they have the aspiration, because they want to accomplish what their soul wishes to accomplish. But in the moment when you accomplish it, then what else is there to be done? The shock is so big that there have been sadhus in India who just walked in the Ganges and drowned themselves. After they reached Nirvana, they simply stepped in the Ganges and killed their body. They just went. Because, like, what is there to accomplish anymore? I've accomplished it. Life on Earth is finished, from my standpoint. So, what is the purpose ...which comes afterwards. That is the big question. And that is why... ...here... ...of course this, this statement... ...can be... ...misused. And it has been misused. For him who is freed from... ...attachment to worldly luxuries... ...it is the same whether he practices asceticism... ...or not. But then every fake... ...can say, oh, but I am so detached... ...from worldly luxuries... So I can as well have fifty three Rolls Royces because it won't matter anymore. I'm to me it doesn't apply. Ultimately, you know that the ultimate test for many many things is time. Like time will tell. Time will show. With Buddha, we know time told. With Abhinavagupta and with Rumi and with Saint Teresa of Avila, we know. Time has told. The mark which they left in the collective subconscious mind, in the soul of the humanity, in the Akashic records, is of a certain time. Yes, even religious people have detractors and contest, contesters. People who try to smear them with mud. There are people who say that Jesus was a schizophrenic. Or that Jesus didn't even exist And is a Mickey Mouse figment Of some people's imagination But still The masses Vox Populi Vox Dei The voice of the people Is the voice of the gods The masses have decided The collective subconscious mind Carries a momentum Which is very clear And therefore This is why I say that uh, time solves and shows a lot of things and that's why many people can twist this statement like oh i fit in this category i'm totally freed from attachment to worldly luxuries and therefore it's it's the same if i practice any asceticism or not that's a license to luxury it's a license to all sorts of things Because I can pretend I'm free from attachment to worldly luxuries. But if it is not true, then that was obviously a fake. And in spirituality, there is so much falsity. Precisely because it's not like physics. In physics and in mathematics, two and two makes four most of the time. And you can demonstrate it and repeat the experiment. In spirituality one spiritualist is like Francis of Assisi and another spiritualist is like Osho Rajneesh or something and they are different like water and fire from each other and then you can ask you know which is which can both of them be the real thing and how do you demonstrate and who will know and who can prove and all those things and that is why Uh, there is this ultimate test, which is the test of time. That Kali will allow the survival only of the real thing. Everything which is not aligned with the Dharma, Kali will simply crush it to dust and pass it into the dust of time, into the sand of time. And that is why you can imagine that in the time of the Roman Empire, in the time of Jesus, in the, there were so many so-called prophets and seers and people mumbling sutras going around and pretending they can see, uh, parallel worlds. And, you know, you, everybody knows, like the Spanish, the Inquisition in the West had to burn hundreds of people every year. Just to stay away from this madness which is existing in the crowd. I'm not saying that that's the solution to put an end to it. But the fact that even when there existed inquisition. And people knew. There is an inquisition present in this world. And it's not going to disappear for the next hundred years. So you should behave. Because it's your ass. And yet people were are burned all the time. So people simply can't refrain. In this island, there are, I don't know how many people who claim they are enlightened. You know, if we'd have a Spanish Inquisition, do you think they would shut up? No. They would keep on going because this madness is stronger even than the fear. It's something which even transgresses the self-conservation. People have to blurt out something because they believe very strongly in something and so on. And even if you tell them, there's the Inquisition right around the corner, shut up. No, people are suicidal when it comes to these kinds of things. Therefore, you can imagine when in the Roman Empire, when there was no Inquisition, you can imagine what the madness was. Today, people are digging up in the so-called apocryphal Christian literature, some Gnostic texts and others. That's why there is apocryphal Christian literature, because suddenly all sorts of idiots started producing gospels. There were all sorts of Zvadistanistic idiots who had nothing to do with Christianity or with Jesus and who started writing the gospel of Mary Magdalene, in which Mary Magdalene was deep-throating Jesus. You know? And who could contradict them? There was no inquisition in those days, so you could write pretty much whatever you wanted. Did the, the world is full of spiritual madness. When you get to the spiritual level, people take off the censorship. And from their right brain hemisphere, they start pouring madness completely all day long. Ah, oh, an angel told me that the aliens are coming tomorrow, you know, and Like people read, go out there on the internet, especially now that the Inquisition is down again, people are producing all the madness in the world. Maybe we should reintroduce the Inquisition from time to time for 50 years to do some cleansing in this world, you know, because people keep producing garbage. There are so many books containing garbage out there, we could save the Amazon jungle, you know, from cutting down if we wouldn't print so much shit. With also all those many aberrations out there. That's why I say. That it is very easy to, to produce spiritual garbage. And only time will show. Like the fathers of the desert. Got often in provoked to arguments. You know like about Jesus. Was Jesus really like this or like that. And the fathers of the desert would always put their hands together. And they would say brother you know what you are talking about. No, like you are telling me, you know, there are not the seven chakras, there are eight chakras. Brothers, you know what you are talking about. Which means, in case you don't get the message of this modest answer, the message of this modest answer is see you in paradise. And like, I don't want to talk to you until after we die. And if I won't see you in paradise, it means you believed in some shit and you are gnashing your teeth in hell. Tough luck for you. You know, it's like if you really believe that there are eight chakras, go ahead. That's not what the Shastras say. You say that the angel Moroni came and told you that there are eight chakras. Go with the angel Moroni and see you in Eden. If the angel Moroni is right, I'll see you in Eden. If the angel Moroni is what we think it is, then uh, you will gnash your teeth and start in samsara again and again until you will learn the lesson that you shouldn't believe any stupidity your mind is producing at all time because the mind is just a mill of producing ideas and it's not to be taken too seriously. So back to our story. This statement number three, it is easy to twist. There are many people who can claim they are above attachment. And then you know what? Time will tell. Four. For him who has realized a reality with a capital R, which means the state of Samadhi, it is the same whether he dwells on an isolated hilltop in solitude or wanders hither and thither as a pilgrim. Like the Tibetans, were sometimes insisting some spiritual systems or insisting you should not stay in the same place because you get attached to the place you should always be on the move always be on the move never catch roots anywhere so you don't get attached be a pilgrim be a pilgrim like the babas from india who theoretically have the dharma the sadhana not to stay more than three days in one place keep moving 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 and some others On the contrary, they said you should have a cell in a monastery or a cave in a mountain or whatever it is and stay there until you reach nirvana. Like, don't move at any cost. Get bored, bang your head against the wall, fight with all the demons which come from your own mind and stay there. Don't go anywhere. Resist any temptation. Just stay Because the purpose is right there. Like Rumi says, where are you wasting your life searching for treasure? Because there is a treasure waiting in your own house. You are wasting your life and your lover and your treasure is in your own house. Like There's no need to go anywhere. There's no need to do anything exceptional. It's right there. So here the Tibetans say even this distinction... Is insignificant. If you have reached reality. What does it matter. If you are a pilgrim. Or if you stay quiet in on a hilltop. Or It won't matter anymore. When Buddha reached his nirvana. He was not sitting quietly anymore. And the other samans. The other ascetics. Who had known him before. They considered him a weakling. They considered him like fallen off the path. Because he was not respecting the tapas. He was not respecting the rules of the tapas. And Buddha then held his first sermon by explaining to them, look brothers, I don't need to do these regulations anymore because I have reached that which is beyond those regulations and thus it's not valid for me. And they took a while but and some of them believed him and some didn't. And those who believed, they became his disciples, his first disciples. That was the first sermon given by the Buddha, explaining why he is not sitting on a hilltop anymore. Why did he move from his hilltop? Why did he quit his meditation place? Five. For him who has attained the mastery of his mind, as you can see, this is for him, for him, for him, for him. It addresses only to Buddhahood. So this paragraph is like a good finale to our reading because it's like setting the goal. I hope that this paragraph will not only give you a few teachings like this, but I hope it will inspire you. Like I hope you want to become like that i hope all of you would like to become like that i hope all of you want to become one who has realized reality for whom it is the same if it dwells on a hilltop or wanders as a pilgrim that's the whole point Im- implicitly all these statements are describing the glory the glorious state of attaining when you attain a lot of things which for spiritual practitioners and normal people matter, for you they don't matter anymore for a very clear reason. So here is the fifth. For him who has attained the mastery of his mind, which is not possible except you transcend the mind, because the mind cannot observe itself, the mind cannot witness itself, therefore the mind cannot command itself, there is a commander of the mind. So, for the one who has attained mastery of the mind, it means again, for the one who has attained the transcendental aspect beyond the mind. For him who has attained the mastery of his mind, it is the same whether he partakes of the pleasures of the world or not. As you know, for the Buddhists, especially, and Tibet is coming from a Buddhist angle, For the Buddhist, it has been stated as a great danger to partake in the pleasures of the world because the pleasures of the world create attachment and they create samskaras and vasanas and the pleasures of the world create desires and the pleasures of the world create, as I said, the desire to fulfill the things of the world rather than the central thing, rather than the big thing. And therefore, the pleasures of the world are considered to be highly addictive and a great risk, plus producing karma and a lot of other things which come together with those. And that is why, of course, when you go to a real hardcore Buddhist place, if you want to take that teaching, the teaching is clear, you have to kill all the fun. There should be no fun. The fun is nirvana, which is a fun beyond the pleasures of the world. And for that fun, you have to sacrifice everything else, starting with food and sex and finishing with too much sleep or comfort or a million things are there. And of course, you all know that in most religions of the world, that is praised. Like people... Here in this island, and as well as in the whole of the East, and Thailand in particular, they are giving food, Uh, they are, you know, insisting to give food and donations to the monks in the temple. But be very sure that they keep an eye on it, and if suddenly they would see the monks in the temple sleeping on uh, futon mattresses and driving Mercedes cars around, they wouldn't give them donations anymore because they will say you are not practicing austerities you are not you know you are you have become gluttons you have become people who enjoy like you are living more comfortable than we the householders are that's not fair why should we sponsor you when you actually are totally fake you are total cheaters from you are we give you money because you torture yourselves The alms are a payment for austerity. Because you do austerity, we respect that. And if you don't do austerity, you are really bad. And you don't deserve us to give you anything. There is an implicit blackmail into it. There is a codependence, a psychological codependence in this phenomenon. That is why it is like partaking in the pleasures of the world, it's not if you take the robes. So what I'm trying to say here is that this shloka, this statement here is again transcending this very powerful point in spiritual life. It, it is a tantric point of view which transcends. It says it can be this way, it can be that way. It doesn't say that uh, not partaking in the pleasures of the world is wrong. It doesn't say that partaking in the pleasures of the world is right. It simply says that then it is the same whether one partakes in the pleasures of the world or not. Like Buddha can occasionally step out of the monastery and go join a party. His monks in the monastery cannot, not yet. They haven't reached that level. Of course, Buddha realizing that this might be misjudged, did a formidable sacrifice and didn't go to parties from time to time. Not because it would have meant anything wrong to him but because it would have ruined the faith of the others who couldn't see beyond appearances. And this sort of sacrifice is really painful psychologically. The Christian mystics who knew it very well, they called it the day-to-day martyrdom. They simply said there are martyrs who get martyrized suddenly with a blow of an axe or a bullet And they fall for a cause. Like Mahatma Gandhi. And that's the easy way. Paradoxically. Because you get a bullet. And then you are in paradise. That's the easy way out. And then there are people. Who are made by God. That although they reached spirituality. They have to stay around here. And sometimes they have to play a role. That role is a role is not really necessary anymore it's just a role and that role simply means that you wake up in the morning and you are Hamlet again you have to play the role of Hamlet every morning time and again because the world needs to see the Hamlet in you and because of that that is called the day to day martyrdom like it's a martyrdom it's like you stand up and you say ah no it's like you don't need it but the world needs it so it's an act of compassion that it is done and it is considered worse than being killed for your faith when you are killed for your faith that's the quick way out that's the easy way out then you don't need to do 50 years of day-to-day martyrdom like buddha did it's very difficult to understand, especially when you are a beginner in spirituality, how deep this statement goes. But the statement is clear. When you are at the level of Krishna, either you partake in the pleasures of the world or not is unimportant. It's not of any relevance. So it's the same. Six for him who is endowed with the fullness of compassion. This is not spiritual realization in itself, but in Buddhism, it's one of the big corollaries of it. It's, it's a sort of a siddhi, it's a sort of a samskara, which you keep even when you are enlightened. Compassion goes very well with enlightenment, Although it is not always accompanying enlightenment. I am telling you time and again that there have been great spiritualists who were not compassionate. And you cannot accuse them of anything. They were not compassionate because they had the freedom of not being compassionate, should they choose so. The freedom is the ultimate character of that Supreme Consciousness. And because the freedom is that character, there is no obligation. The enlightened beings have no obligation to love, to be compassionate, to be moral and ethical. They are because they choose so, usually for the image which is left to the world. But because they know that for other people it will matter in time. So for him who is endowed with the fullness of compassion, which is an additional characteristic, you know that compassion in the first level of yoga, you learn how compassion looks in terms of chakras, where it comes from. It is the same whether he practices meditation in solitude or he works for the good of others in the midst of society. It's the same thing solitary life or Mother Teresa type of karma yoga, Mahatma Gandhi thing, it won't matter once you are at that level. But what if you are not at that level? Then, of course, it matters. It matters a lot because those are two different paths. Milarepa spent time alone and he reached grand capacities of the mind and he reached an enlightenment which is legendary until today, Mahatma Gandhi spent time in the midst of the society, pulled to the left and to the right, challenged by human passions all day long. And because of this, Mahatma Gandhi never had the time to develop great capabilities of the mind, great states of samadhi. And actually, he declared very clearly that by the time which is known for his death, he had never been in samadhi, he had never experienced any state of samadhi. Mahatma Gandhi was declared an enlightened being by Swami Shivananda and by Sri Aurobindo, who both of them said that because he died the death of a martyr in the line of duty for the non-violence, he was enlightened through grace in the moment of death like he reached Mrityu Mukti, the liberation in death, the liberation at the moment of death. And when the statement comes from two gigantic yogis like Shivananda and Aurobindo, then that statement has a very big credence, it has a very big weight, it carries a very big weight with it. But otherwise, the path of Milarepa and the path of Mahatma Gandhi are so different in their outcome, in their daily outlook and so on, that actually um, it makes a big difference. And yet, the Tibetan yogis say, if you have reached compassion, then that difference disappears. Because it won't matter. When you are in solitude, you shine with compassion for this world. For all the sentient beings. When you are in the middle of the world. You shine with compassion. For all the sentient beings. Therefore. Having reached this level. Of compassion. Is automatically. It's like a safety catch. It's like a safety threshold. Beyond it. Then some differences. Won't matter anymore. It is very Relevant again. Seven. For him whose humility and faith with respect to his guru are unshakable, it is the same whether he dwells with his guru or not. The most classical example is in Mahabharata, where Karna, the battle master of the Pandavas, He is asked, a pupil is coming and is asking to be his disciple. And Drona says, no, I am, I'm busy with these people. These people are princes, are from the royal caste. I don't have time for you. It's not my dharma in this life to take disciples like you. I have a very clear dharma here and therefore you can't be my disciple. And then this disciple, I forgot his name. You can see in the Mahabharata movie of Peter Brooks, this scene is reproduced. Then this disciple goes in the forest. He creates a clay image of Drona, like a statue. And he starts training in martial arts in front of this statue. Every morning he bows down to the statue. He touches the feet like people do with a guru. In India, he does all the rituals for venerating the guru. And then he starts training in the typical Indian martial arts of those days. And he actually reaches an incredible proficiency. He reaches a level of skill which even Arjuna, who was the perfect warrior, even Arjuna is flabbergasted by it somebody brings to him a bird in which two arrows were put in a certain way and Arjuna runs with it to Drona and he says, Master, you told me that I was going to be the best warrior in this world and look this bird and who shot it even I maybe cannot do that so there is somebody out there who is a warrior at least as good as I am so how can I be the best warrior? it's like your promise is fake or what? And then Drona goes and finds this young boy training day and night in front of a statue of his. And by it, he had reached perfection. He was better than a disciple that was physically present with him. And then Drona does an inconceivable thing, which is that he asks the young boy to mutilate himself, to cut one of his fingers, So that he won't be able to yield weapons anymore. And this act of terrible cruelty. And the guy, the boy does it. Because this is his guru asking him. And he says, if my guru wants me to give him his thumb. Here it is. No, like old-fashioned guru ways. And when Drona is asked, what is the explanation of this insane? Like, why did you basically interrupt the career of a young man who was in spirit? your disciple and Rona gives a very weird answer which is very wise and he says it is because the earth has lost its purity and we are stepping into an age of darkness and he basically says this this boy is out of his time he was not meant to exist because he had so much devotion and willpower He violated the laws of karma and dharma and he managed to make himself into what he was. But he is not desired in the events which are following. We can't have him like a loose cannon out there. The history needs to go in another way and because of this, this boy actually needed to be sacrificed and luckily he had enough humbleness to accept his fate because his guru knew better And he simply said, you know, it's like you are born out of your time. Congratulations, because you achieved the skill. I acknowledge it. Now it stops. Now it stops. So, therefore, this is what he says. For him who is endowed, whose humility and faith with respect to his guru are unshakable, like this boy was, it is the same whether he dwells with his guru or not. Because it is the spiritual contact which matters. When I was young, I was seeking the company of my guru in those days. Whoever was my guru, you know, because I had different teachers at different times, but I was feeling this contact, and I was sometimes feeling like a choking man. You know, I had to see my teacher periodically, to hear his voice, to hear his opinions, to ask questions, because I was... So dependent. I was like a child holding the hand of his mother in a crowd, you know. I would feel that if I let go of the hand of my teacher, I would simply get lost in the world. So I was, you know, very, very attached, which was right for that stage of my evolution. And um, then I remember that I read in Tibetan literature that there were lineages of Tibetan yoga in which the gurus were visiting the disciples once per year. Like the disciples lived in a cave and the guru was browsing through them. Every year, you got to have the visit of the guru once a year. The guru had like a hundred disciples in a hundred caves and every three days he was to the next one and to the next one and to the next one. So you got to see your guru for three days During a year. Or for a day during a year. And the guru would come and say. How is the practice going? What have you done? What blockages have you encountered? What insights did you have? And then based on that. The guru would give you the next practice. For the next one year. When I read that. I shuddered. In fear. Because I realized. I don't know if I have this kind of devotion. And faith. I don't know if I would resist. Like, I'm so spoiled that I can go and talk to my teacher. I'm so spoiled that I can always ask questions. But there have been disciples, not to mention Milarepa, who spent 30 years alone without any teacher. Like, he got the teacher, he got the teaching, he practiced a little bit, then gone he was in the wilderness. Not only, not like that, but there were people, many normal disciples who got instruction once a year. There was one or two or three sacred days in a year when your teacher came, analyzed what you did, gave you what to do further. And then the teacher would just go. And then you are alone for one more year. Do, do, do. Don't ask questions. There is nobody that you can ask questions. Just practice with faith. I tell you, when I read this, I thought, my God, you know, it's like if I would have been bought, born in those conditions, what would I have done? Would I have had the power to, to be on the path? Would I had the, the stamina, the faith, the devotion for this? That is a great thing. So what gives this stamina, what gives this power For him whose humility and faith with respect to his guru are unshakable. That's what it takes. It takes humility and to have faith in the teachings which come from the teacher. Then it is the same if you dwell with the teacher in an ashram, in a hermitage, in a school or not. It is very important teaching which shows... Some levels of commitment in spirituality. Number eight. For him who understands thoroughly the teachings which he has received. It is the same whether he meets with good fortune or with bad fortune. Incredible. Because people always expect that in a yoga school or in spirituality your teacher is supposed to have a magic wand to hit you over the head so that once you have learned your wudhyana bandha and naulis you are going to meet only with good fortune like nobody in here is supposed to run in trouble ever because you are doing yoga that's completely an absurd view of life because there is no yin without yang and no yang without yin There is no light without shadow and no shadow without light. There is no hill without valley and no valley without hill. Therefore, it's simply not possible. Of course, some people will run into good fortune and some people will run into bad fortune. It's true. Yoga gives you some skills of dealing with some of the bitter situations of life like for example if your health is frail of course that yoga will uh, give you some methods of dealing with your health at least within some limits but those limits are pretty broad so you can do a lot but when you look at the evolution of the people that you know in yoga you're going to see that some people in yoga are having good fortune Like they don't have many diseases, Uh, they uh, have a good financial, karma, flow or something. They are faring well in their relationships or sex or whatever it is. And some people always seem to stumble. They are always miserable financially. They are always weak health wise or bodily. They are always having relationship trouble. And so on and so forth. And this statement says, For he who understands thoroughly the teachings which are received. Because people keep hoping that yoga is some sort of magic pill to give you pleasure and fun for the rest of your life. Which it isn't, because it means you did not understand. Happiness is not something which keeps you away from pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain are not equivalent to happiness. Happiness is an internal condition which transcends pleasure and pain, good and evil, health and disease, and all those. When we want to reach happiness, we want to reach the zenith of the inner spirituality, a fulcrum, a point, the cornerstone of everything up there, which maintains us fulfilled but that fulfillment existed even in people who are persecuted, there are people who are subjected to religious persecution and they were happy so the happiness has nothing to do with if you have good fortune, look at the life of Paul, Paul after he became the apostle of Christ he spent 8 years as an apprentice in a fisherman's net weaving workshop Like manual worker, base manual worker, getting some miserable food and doing manual work all day long. Then he started preaching and he got beaten, thrown into prison, tortured, threatened on his life, shipwrecked and finally condemned to death by Nero or whoever it was. And what I'm trying to say is, Spirituality and your spiritual practice is not a guarantee for good fortune or bad fortune. Yoga is not a good fortune talisman. It's it's not aiming to go there. Yoga is aiming to something much greater than good fortune. Because good fortune comes and goes. In this life you have good fortune, in the next life you have bad fortune. In this life you are a virtuous person, in the next life you become a sinner. There is no guarantee, nothing is stable, everything flows, the wheel is turning, and what is down on the wheel today is going to be up on the wheel tomorrow. And thus, there is never rest or stability in the universe of Prakriti or Samsara, because the law of Samsara is change change, change it's nothing ever remains the same, there is no stability, only God is the same only Purusha, the Buddha nature, Shiva is always the same and that is why um, he who understands thoroughly the teachings which he has received, it is the same whether he meets good fortune or bad fortune This is a little bit like the teachings which we give about Santosha, contentment. Like when you have contentment, wherever you are, you do whatever you do. Even Osho Rajneesh proved a great amount of wisdom when they threw him in prison in America. Not only they threw him in prison. Apparently they poisoned him. That's a contestable statement. But they put loudspeakers on the walls of his cell so he could not sleep in the night. And they were playing horrible hard rock music and stuff like this, like they tortured him in various ways. And uh, the journalists asked him, how is it now from Rolls Royce's to American prison? And he said, you can throw me even in hell, but you cannot take the paradise from inside me. That was indeed a wise, good answer, because it showed exactly this. Good fortune, bad fortune, does not change the nature of the spiritual reality. I told you in Santosha lectures I often tell that story of the Christian saint who got thrown into a salt mine and in six months he had organized that salt mine which was a deadly place of tuberculosis, darkness, cold and humidity into a monastery. People were serving the mass every day and were praying and were leading a perfect Christian monastery life to the point where the emperor had to throw him out of the prison because he had converted everybody in the prison to Christianity and he had turned everybody to spiritual practice. Good fortune, bad fortune, what does it matter? I see so many people who when they are on the wave, they want to practice yoga and as soon as they get in some hole, they are ready to quit. It's like the marriage commitment, right? Together for the good, And for the bad. Like there's not going to be always good time. Together in health and in illness. In happiness and unhappiness. That's commitment indeed. Like when you commit yourself to God. You don't commit yourself to God. If God makes you feel good. That's not the way it works. You commit yourself to the spiritual quest. In good fortune and in bad fortune. And you can pray that the divine forces should give you mostly good fortune. That's possible. But it is not absolutely guaranteed. And the cosmic consciousness has a sense of humor, which is often incomprehensible to the human mind, and sometimes even not perceivable as sense of humor. God, say the Hindus, plays. But when that play contains world wars and tsunamis, it's very difficult to see any play in that. Especially when you are on the painful end of that stick. So uh, that is why here the accent is on understanding thoroughly the teachings. There are again many people who think That yoga is some feel-good miracle. That's how yoga is taught in the West. It's a fitness where people go to feel good. That's not the real yoga. I'm not saying that you should search for yoga, which makes you feel bad. That would be masochism. Nobody should ask for trouble. But trouble might come your way. It's not always good fortune. It is bad fortune as well, and there is a British dictum which says that the character of people is seen much more clearly in adversity than in good times. In good times, everybody is nice, but when suddenly five people are shipwrecked on a boat in the middle of the ocean and there is no food, then suddenly the monsters start coming out. In adversity, you see who people really are. And that's why adversity is very necessary. Actually, you know, even in a relationship, you are with each other and everything is walking on rose petals. You don't really know the other person until you've been with them through hell a little bit. And when you've been in adversity with somebody, And that person is still a wonderful person. Then you know that there you've got a real friend. There you've got real love. And thus, it's the same for everyone's life. Do not fear bad fortune or, you know, go just for good fortune. That's not the point. That is getting deluded by one of the polarities of life. But it's a true. This is one of the polarities of life. Which is very tempting. Because everybody here in this room. Hopes to have good fortune. Nobody is. Masochistic. To ask for bad fortune. In the future. And yet. It's a sad thing. But necessary. That some of you will run into bad fortune. At some time. I pray that it won't happen to any of you in this room, but the Dharma is overriding my prayer. So my prayer for whatever it is worth, it says, may you all present here enjoy good fortune. May it be so. At the same time, remember that bad fortune exists and the teachings work in good fortune and in bad fortune as well. Nine. For him who has given up the worldly life and taken to the practice of the spiritual truths, it is the same whether he observes conventional codes of conduct or not. Like, what are the conventions valid for a spiritual person? The conventions are made for the world, but the person who starts practicing true spirituality is a little bit outside of the world that's why the person who is outside spirituality doesn't need to practice the conduct of the world remember how many accusations were given to Jesus that he was not observing the Sabbath that he was not washing his hands when entering the temple or whatever hundred other regulations were there and Buddha I'm sorry, Jesus couldn't care less and neither Buddha or others and Tantra with its provocative style along the centuries and others like they couldn't care less about the rules of the society sometimes antagonizing the society really bitterly because these people simply said the rules do not apply to us And that is a very dangerous way of thinking, which, however, is purely true in spirituality. I have not seen a single man or woman in my life who I consider strong spiritually, and I have not heard of a single spiritual man or woman that was in the who's who of world spirituality, who was a tame sheep. None of them were people who made compromises and bowed to conventions. All of them were people who scandalized, who went against the norms of conduct, and they couldn't care. Like the same provocative Rajneesh, which is the first who comes to mind, he is famous because he refused to pay taxes. He was indicted by the Indian government because he wouldn't pay taxes. And when he was asked, you know, when they started pressing on him, he said, Buddhas don't pay taxes. Buddhas are tax exempt. And if you try to push me to pay taxes, that's because you are demons and you want, like, Buddhas are out of the rules of people. Now, Of course, the society couldn't accept that But he had the balls to say it. He had the balls to stand for it. And to say you cannot measure me. By the way you measure every Tom, Dick and Harry. Because I'm not. Of course that sounds undemocratic. And when you have a million people vote on it. They will vote. Make the bastard pay his taxes. Who does he think he is? Because people will not have respect for that. But it's true. That. You shouldn't ask Jesus to pay taxes. You shouldn't ask Buddha to pay taxes. In a sane society, this would not happen. Because you cannot measure by the same norms as to the normal people. That is why it says, For him who has given up the worldly life in spirit, he may live in the world as it said above but if the detachment is there and taken to the practice of the spiritual truths, it is the same whether he observes conventional codes of conduct or not this is very difficult to understand and it's another rule which has been abused like there are many people who justify their aberrant ways by simply saying I am above the codes of conduct and many people around say bullshit And how do we know what the truth is? I told you, only time will tell. That's the talent of Kali. The river of time washes everything slowly, slowly, and nothing resists to time. Where are the great pseudo-seers who are writing all those crazy apocryphal gospels in the time of the Apostles. They are nowhere. They are gone. Everybody who studies Christianity will remember Peter and Paul. But where are the Tom, Dix, and Harrys who wrote all that apocryphal literature? Nowhere. Because the time has dissolved them. The time has eaten them. The time has atomized them. They are irrelevant. In the view of Kali... Their memory doesn't deserve to survive. They are not worth keeping up in the history of mankind, in the collective subconscious mind. They are faces in a crowd. They are Tom, Dicks and Harry who have a negligible existence. Therefore, remember that people can abuse this one. That if you are going into real spirituality... Then you are not bound by the conventional codes of conduct. Most of my teachers were like this. Perhaps my tantric teacher, my yoga, tantric yoga teacher was an extreme example because he was in tantric yoga and he had the same Robin Hoodish attitude, you know, like I, you know, the, I don't owe anything to the society all the society is miserable and decadent and i simply don't owe anything it's simply a demonic thing and i can perhaps improve it but don't ask me to bend to its rules because its rules are man-made or it is like the prophet muhammad said when he defined the rules of the jihad the small and the great where he said if the laws of man." contradict the laws of Allah, then break the laws of man. It is okay in front of God to break the laws of man when they do not correspond to the laws of Allah. Of course, the skeptical, cynical person can say, yeah, but which are the laws of Allah? Because according to Muhammad, there are some, and according to Buddha, there are something slightly different. And therefore, they will never agree on exactly the set of what it is. In yoga, it's yama and niyama. In Christianity and Judaism, it's the Ten Commandments and all sorts of other things. So what is... That's why we cannot argue on that. That's not the point. But the point is that, as I told you, I can confirm in my life that in spirituality... When spirituality is alive, there appears this feeling very clearly. That sometimes the society is imperfect and uh, it there makes absolutely no sense that you should submit to some of the norms of the society. Like you want to make an ashram, you want to build an ashram and then the people with the construction codes are coming. And they make impossible your ashram project for the kind of money that you have to imply in that project. So the question is, shouldn't you say fuck and do the ashram anyway because it's going to help a lot of people? Or should you bend, should you bow to bureaucracy and simply get out by bureaucracy invented by a bunch of limited souls? Shouldn't the spiritual man or woman be a hero who struggles like Teresa of Avila. She was building monasteries in the in her lineage, in her tradition. <clears throat> and the municipality of different cities and aristocratic people and even some other branches of the Catholic Church, they always tried to stop her. Teresa of Avila, ultra-Catholic Christian female saint, Proclaimed by the Pope of her time as doctor in theology. Although she never studied theology being a woman. So a woman that had the recognition. When you'll see the movie of her life. You'll get appalled because they were kicking her shins all day long. They were sabotaging her all day long. Yes the good Catholics of Spain. They were sabotaging the one of the greatest saints of Catholic Christianity. Precisely because she was not listening to the rules, they said, "No, you can't make a a prayer house here. She made a sort of prayer houses, like small monasteries, and they said, No, you can't make a prayer house here because your chanting and bell ringing is going to disturb everybody. And she said, What do I care about the disturbance of everybody? Isn't God the most important? Is your sleep more important than God' I'm going to make a place of prayer because that's the most important thing in this world. And your sleep and habits can adapt around that. I will not adapt around your lifestyle. You have to adapt around God's things. That's that's why most of the people, my teacher in chiropractic was chased not only by the police. He was chased by the administration of the monastery in which he lived that he should stop do chiropractic and healing on people. And the ridiculous thing is that the monastery was getting wealthy because of the donations which people brought to that monastery, because they got healed by this man. And although he was ensuring the food and the prosperity of the monastery single-handed, nevertheless, everybody was chasing him like he should stop doing healing. Did he stop doing healing? Never. Until the hour of his death, that man kept doing healing. He was a rebel, although he had a vow of obedience as a monk. And yet, he was disobedient on some matters. Because when it came to do the dharma, when it came to be compassionate, he did not accept stupid rules overruling what was divinely sanctioned. So that's why when you reach indeed to that level, it is the same whether one observes conventional codes of conduct or not. That's why in spirituality you hear some wild stories. And finally, ten to conclude our excursion, For him who has attained the sublime wisdom... So again, it is a great ideal... It is the same whether he is able to exercise miraculous powers or not. Like of course many people would say... It would be nice if I could materialize a rose in front of you right now... Because maybe that will make you believe that I'm not talking bullshit... When I'm talking about God. But ultimately... To be able to materialize a rose in the palm of your hand doesn't demonstrate anything except that you have some siddhis and that your Ajna chakra can produce some miraculous effects. That doesn't demonstrate that you know God. It just demonstrates that you are different from the average citizen and maybe people believe that if you are different in that then you are different in other things as well such as you might know God, which is a dumb inference because it doesn't really, it's not logical. It doesn't go logical that if you can levitate, it means that you might be knowing God as well. And that's why the attitude, this is the typical attitude of Tibetan yogis to miraculous powers. They say for the one who has attained the sublime wisdom, it's nirvana that matters. It's liberation, it's enlightenment that matters. Then it is the same whether he be able to exercise miraculous powers or not. Maybe it's not the same for the others. Because the others still care about appearances. But for that person, it is the same. And this is, of course, the famous point of the attitude typical in India and Tibet about what is the relationship between wisdom and spiritual realization on one side and paranormal abilities and occult matters on the other side. Remember that there were great, great teachers who never, ever in their lives showed any miraculous thing, any paranormal thing whatsoever. Like Ramana Maharishi, lived a long life as a spiritual teacher and he died of a cancer. There are rumors that sometimes he even had nocturnal emissions, wet dreams when he was younger and so on. Like, he didn't even manifest some of the Hatha Yoga amazing accomplishments on the body. But he was enlightened when he reached the age of 17 And all those things didn't really matter to him. He never found out the motivation to go and do some Hatha Yoga, to go and do some Pranayama, to do Nauli and headstands, to do this and that, so that he could uh, show or do or improve some things. It, It had become obsolete. It had become redundant or unnecessary for him. Would it have impressed the people more... If Ramana Maharishi one day would have come and healed somebody with his hand, yes, it would have impressed people more, but Ramana Maharishi was not even interested in impressing people. He was just living out his state of enlightenment, and if some will like it, they are welcome to like it. And if some wouldn't like it, it's their problem, and thus they should stay away from it. Therefore, again, the same transcendental position... Like, opposites are not important. What is important is not yin or yang. What is important is the Tao, which transcends the yin and the yang. Not the polarities, but the middle, the middle path, the golden middle, the thing which transcends polarities that is truly important. With this, we conclude the discourses on teachings from Tibetan yoga. It took us quite a number of weeks to go through those. Uh, These are beautiful teachings. I hope they will give you stamina in your spirituality. Listen to them because the Tibetan spirit in spiritual practice is famous. They were really strong, committed, uncompromising practitioners. And um, I hope they will help you they will give you strength in your evolution and practice and especially when you'll feel down I hope that by reading some of the Tibetan yoga principles by listening to some of these discourses I hope it will help you through the dark night of your soul to get strengthened that other people have been there that other people have done that that there is a great, great human lore as concerning spiritual evolution spiritual practice and the self improvement of the human being next week I will come up with different comments I first have a few shorter subjects that I want to approach with you I have a few texts of which I would like to comment for you The list is still open. Bring me or to the administration or whoever is on your lineage there. If you feel that there is a very important subject that you would like to hear about in the months to come, put it on a piece of paper, give it to your teacher or whoever is involved, whoever will have contact with me on the line of teaching, and they will bring it to me. And I will look through your suggestions. There already are a couple of people who suggested some subjects which would be relevant for them. In this way, you can influence, still, because I have so many choices of what I could do, and uh, you could influence those choices by expressing your need for that. Let us remain now in peaceful silence for a moment or two, so that we allow the spirit of the teachings to sink deep in. And then we'll stop and part for tonight. And that will do. With this we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you and thank you for joining. On the next Thursday we'll continue with new subjects for our weekly satsangs. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com downloads.